Here's Johnny. I'll be back. And you will know my name is the Lord. I'm walking here. I'm walking here. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. I'm going to clap my hands, but we got good old clicker right here. Hello, and welcome to Box Office Pulp, your one-stop podcast for movies, madness, and moxie. I'm your host, Cody. Joining me today are my co-host, Mike. Say hello, Mike. I'm sorry. I'm just uh, I'm taken aback by how disgusted I am that ClickR is back. Too bad. And now you've mentioned it, it has to be part of the show. You just fucked up the edit. No, I know. I, I, I realized that when I needed to bring that up, that I have to leave in you clicking that goddamn thing, but uh, I don't People like are going to know anymore. we're a real podcast with real, real equipment like this dog training click R. No, I, okay. I, I just want to talk to everybody for a second. Click R, the clicker that Cody uses to start the show, has for quite a while for some reason, just been sitting in another room uselessly. <laughs> it's, and... it's sitting in my office. Um, I, I, it's too far to just walk across my apartment and go to my office and get out clicker before I record. You don't keep it where you podcast. You keep it in your office, which makes me wonder, what else have you used clicker for? Just this show, to be honest. Although it is for dog training, but you probably use it for people, too. I wonder, like, if I could just get you guys on command. Like, Jamie, speak. Introduce yourself. <laughs> I'm Jamie. I host the show most of the time. I'm I'm the third. Good, Jamie. Snack, Jamie. Snack for Jamie. Don't never say Ooh, snack, definitely. Jamie, ever again. <laughs> Snacks. Boring Mike, I think favorite. everyone wants to be a snack, don't they? I mean, I, you know. Well, you know, in Fear Street, there was that dude who looked at himself in a mirror and then masturbated because he was so turned on by his own reflection. So I brought it back around. Good job. Although a little little bit of a weird way to do it. Why not? Folks, if you haven't gathered, today we're here to discuss Netflix's new trilogy based on the Fear Street novels. Uh, I say based on. Has anyone... It, it, I'm not actually familiar with the Fear Street books. I, I stopped at Goosebumps for my, my Steinery. Um... Is this like an actual trilogy of books he wrote at some point? Because there's a shit ton of Fear Street books. Was this the plotline of the movies anywhere in the, the novels? Mm, yes and no. I'm not like super familiar, but I kind of delved in um, after originally watching them. Uh, so I'm not even going to try to explain anything because I'm not knowledgeable <laughs> enough on them to properly do that. And I'll just make someone mad. But for the most part, a lot of elements... Um, there's a lot of elements taken from the different Fear Streets um, to kind of make this new cohesive story. This this story is a lo loose adaption of something that's overall in the books with the whole witch's curse and, and the stuff with Sheriff Good and, and all that. There's like a version of that in the books, and this is like a remixed version that also brings in other other stuff. That is also uh, tied in and has nothing to do with that pilot TV show from the 90s. <laughs> That's the important thing. Uh, if, folks, if you haven't seen like the pilot intro <laughs> from like the old 90s version of this, I think you owe it to yourself to go track that down. It's uh, it's, it's like a bowling alley art became sentient. It's all skeletons getting down, too. So I feel like it unintentionally created the Internet sense of humor. <laughs> It was there a little too early, which is probably why I didn't go to full series. Uh, okay, so <laughs> since you guys aren't super familiar with the books, let's let's switch up the questioning a little bit here. Because this is a question for anyone who watched the movie and has more brain cells than me. Explain how the curse works exactly. So my understanding here, I've, I've seen these movies. I'm not completely dumb. But the way I understand how this works is the good family has made a pact with hell where every generation or so they're supposed to give a couple of names. Those people get possessed. They start killing people and all of their kills essentially are racked up uh, for Satan's favors, allowing the, the good family to maintain good position in a good town. How, how does the blood situation work where uh, the blood of a person also draws in the monsters, but only certain people's blood. And I'm also a little confused about the timing because in the opening scene, we see a person killed who's been possessed 
And then Sheriff Good immediately like gets somebody else possessed. Like he did a twofer, which almost seems like cheating. They possessed multiple people in the past. 78 they did. Yeah, I feel like it's one of those situations where uh, it's it's just about getting as much done in a short amount of time as possible. So each uh, successive member of the Good family that's in charge of these shenanigans just kind of wings it. So the rules are a little bit half, uh, a little bit fast and loose there on the specifics. Okay with them going after multiple people, because uh, theoretically the guy in the shopping mall didn't rack up a huge body count as big as normal. I'm more concerned, like, how, wait, how's the blood thing work? Because it's a repeated plot point that the uh, creepy crawlies from the past are drawn specifically to people's blood. And if you're not the blood they're after, they'll walk right by you. Unless you're in their way. Yeah, the Seraphir's blood thing did confuse me. I feel like there's probably uh, a series of YouTube videos by numerous people who are much smarter and who understand this thing <laughs> have explained it very well, and I probably should have watched it beforehand. Because I, I watched the entire trilogy when they came out. I watched it again this week, and I'm still like, I don't get this. <laughs> it's a very important part of the movie. I should understand this, and I just feel like I'm missing something very obvious. The only thing I think of is, like, whatever kind of curse Sarah put on good is muddling with good's curse at various points i could could kind of buy that because they are trying to you know go after like um sam before she's possessed right like her blood is the thing drawing them in so it's like they're trying to kill her before she comes possessed and kills others yeah so sure i could i could kind of buy that even if uh that that concept doesn't uh 100 track with like established logic and there's not like a clear explanation of it i'm perfectly fine with that being there just for what a cool concept it is well oh, the blood mark thing the movie, is so, so cool. it feels like it belongs i mean because yeah. you get like the trap scene in the third movie where okay this is how we're gonna get good we're gonna dump fake or not fake blood we're gonna drop blood on him and draw in all the monsters okay cool that gives you like some agency against these undefeatable beasts i'm not complaining about that as a plot point i'm just confused as to how it all fits together and I just really wanted to confirm it wasn't me not paying enough attention to the movies as they flew by. Oh, it's. I think there's a lot of people who are confused. I'm not saying there's not a very clear like explanation that's there, but it's. It, I am accepting stu- my own stupidity when it comes to not maybe understanding the plot completely. So it could be Next there, time, it's just uh, not very clear. Uh, Netflix just needs to spoon feed everything to me very gently. I'm. I'm not a smart man. Uh, getting away from the mythology for a second here, I do want to comment on how interesting I found this as an experiment for Netflix. Uh, just just thinking yeah. of how many other Netflix movies have come out and then immediately vanished from uh, the public's eye because they watched them opening weekend or whenever they became available to stream and then stopped caring three days later when they moved on to the next thing. This was smart. You got part one, part two, and then part three all a week apart. So over a month, you basically were with these movies. And at least on Twitter, it was constant chatter. People were excited about them. It became kind of a Friday ritual for a month. And even now, you still, still, you still see folks talking about the movies, even though they've been out for a couple of weeks, which is very yeah. rare. The only other times I could think of Netflix hitting that mark are with, uh, you know, maybe Stranger Things or stuff like House of Cards or, you know, they're, they're big, big, big prestige shows that everyone oh. has to see and talk about. Or okay. even something like Bird Box. Yeah, Bird Box was the last time I remember something on Netflix just being watched by everyone practically all at once. Like, F- Fear Street is essentially the redo of of uh, Grindhouse that works this time. <laughs> well, when was the last time, too? And this is because of streaming. You, you wouldn't do this in a movie theater because they have to play for so long. That you got an entire trilogy in one year. I mean... We had, what, the the Matrix Part 2 and 3 essentially released something like six months apart from each other, I want to say. Like, it's pretty rare that you would get three complete movies next to each other. I'm not, I can't even think of recent examples I compare. Uh, fuck, I was watching the uh, Dimension movies from the 60s this week, too. And it surprised me because there are three of those movies. They were all made in 1966 in Japan. That was like the last time I thought of like a trilogy where they just threw out three movies all in the same calendar year. And that's a totally different situation because there's three different directors with like three different plot lines that don't even really connect. It's just the same kaiju, more or less. So what they've accomplished here is impressive. 
It's bonkers to me to think that, if not for COVID, these would have been released theatrically just a couple of months apart. Like, I, I have no idea how that would have worked. This created an interesting, a cool, like, experiment. It, it, they were great. Like, they kind of hit almost the um, the shutter crowd in a lot of ways, that kind of water cooler fan community. Um, the fact they were fun helped a lot. But also, this it was a neat hybrid with the release schedule between movie trilogy and miniseries. I think that's what that's really made it too. work. This is a lot like kind of the old miniseries, like when they'd release uh, It Part 1 and 2 on whatever it was, ABC or CBS, where it was event viewing, just not a cable. Plus, this is, this is, I mean, attached to a known property, so the older fans are excited for it, but still very accessible. Because you say Fear Street and you don't think, oh, I've got to watch like 14 other movies or read a bunch of novels to understand what's happening here. And it sounds Fear Street. It just it doesn't sound like it's an intimidating thing. So teenagers probably get into it without having to worry about it being like more extreme than they're comfortable with. Well, I think that's kind of the genius of this project, of, of the whole trilogy, is they very intentionally struck a tone of a all-ages movie that is inexplicably R-rated. <laughs> like, it feels like a movie you'd stay up late at night to watch after your parents went to sleep that, you know, that was kind of relevant to your interests and kind of adjacent to the safer stuff you watch, but just a little bit too much. Which is very much in, in keeping with what the Fear Street books were from everything I've read about them, like, just goosebumps, but a little bit darker and a little bit more uh, hopeless and bleak. Yeah, I was kind of surprised by the bleakness coming in. <laughs> I didn't expect this to be a bright, chipper PG-style horror film, but I also didn't expect one of the fan-favorite characters in the first movie to to have her head run through a bread slicer. Um, <laughs> the, or the greatest kill was... of this entire trilogy. Oh, it's going to be Kill of the Year at the Fango Awards. Like, it would be hard for something else to displace that, right? I was going to say, I The story of that movie... was great. Did you, did you hear the story of that? That she really wanted that kill in there? Um, I'm sorry, I forget the the creator's name off the top of my head. Um, uh, the director or the... the, the yes, the direct, director, but she's also, uh, like, showrunner, I guess you could almost call it. Yeah, uh, Janiak. Janiak, uh, yeah. Um, I guess the entire production was trying to convince her that you can't you can't do that with somebody's head with a bread slicer. It's not strong enough. <laughs> when has that ever stopped anyone in horror? I know, right? And that's the line the production crew had. So they got one, brought it to like the writer's room, to the office, got a watermelon to show it would not cut through even a watermelon. And it cut straight through, so she got the kill in. <laughs> that's so dumb to me think of scream one there's a garage door that lifts a person up the ground like garage door is that strong they have pretty small motors really but it's i still fun. don't even know it's how exciting. that killed tatum uh yeah it was like a broken neck electrocution kind of thing i don't know it, it doesn't make perfect sense but my whatever. head cannon is she's still alive and just went into witness protection she's still hiding from <laughs> Stu. half yeah i was gonna say half the crew of uh scream is actually in witness protection Stu is still out there so, I, uh, I just so this is Sorry, I, I was going to say, this This threw me off that uh, going back to Lee Janiak. Um, so she co-wrote the first movie with, uh, oh boy, these names are going to fuck me up, Phil uh, Grisetti. And she also co-wrote part three with him and Kate Treffy. But part two, she co-wrote with a totally different dude. It was uh, Zach Olkovitz, which throws probably explains a lot about why part two is my least favorite. No offense to him. It just feels very different from parts one and three. Which makes sense, because they're written by a different dude. Hmm. And I did not realize that until I was doing a little bit of research today. Yeah, I didn't know that. So, yeah, same. I, I do kind of uh, definitely walked away feeling that uh, that was the weakest link of the trilogy. Which I guess, uh, before we go uh, any further, we should just, uh, just ask each other, yeah, what, what did everybody think of each part? See, that's my favorite. If you go on Twitter, everyone's rankings when these came out were so wildly different. And it's like, oh, I thought I knew you. It's a nice Rorschach sure. test. Yeah, really that's is. what I think is cool about it is because they they're they're aiming to hit on different styles of horror and types of horror. To me, it's a mark of how well it actually does that that it can play into individual preferences for horror styles. 
Like for me, 1666 is my favorite. Like I could watch that part despite it even being, it seemingly shouldn't work because of it then going into a fourth movie essentially at the end. But I, I love but that. It doesn't even have the title so screen. Part two, which is weird because you're watching Fear Street Part Three, 1666. It's, it's kind of a gotcha moment. Because, well, it's kind of brilliant because it's a gotcha moment because of the twist at the end of 1666. So the fact you go into mm. a full like part two of 1994 is like a double twist and kind of brilliant. But yeah, for me, 78 is is the least favorite. I would have loved to have seen audiences' reaction if they pulled that shit in theaters. Surprise, motherfucker, you're in a different movie. I'm telling you, it's, it's like Sin City when they cut to credits and then they're like, ha Bruce Willis isn't really dead. He's got more to do before he dies. Uh, so in my mind, uh, I would actually break them down, not into three parts, but into four. Because 1666 is two movies lumped together under one banner. And I, I would go 1994 is my favorite. Uh 1666 part one then part two and then 1978 i i would also say that 1994 is definitely my favorite 1666 i believe is nuts and bolts the best of the three it's the best written it doesn't have a lot of the pitfalls that plague part one and two but I just, just overall, I got into 1994 a lot more. I love those characters, and I really love the specific tone they were able to strike there. And I'm like always a sucker for queer coming of age stories. So yeah, that was absolutely my jam. 1666 well, like is not fun. Nah. nah, but I mean, 94 has the most fun characters to me because you get more interplay between yeah. everyone, which I really like. Um, that makes up for a lot of issues. But also, this is a very tightly wound trilogy where they are building upon each other. So it doesn't necessarily make sense to watch uh, 1978 by itself. You really need to watch all three because it is a trilogy. They're woven, which means part three gets the benefit of like tying everything together. So it makes it feel much neater and allows them to kind of hit the boxes more easily than yeah. you'd have in the setup in 94. Or unfortunately, the middle part, which feels like it's really just an extended way of trying to get everyone to play the guessing game of what the end game is. That's that's yeah, my that, big that. issue with 78, if I were to complain, because they're essentially doing a feature-length two-hour flashback to set up the fact that the characters are believing in the curse the wrong way, that the next movie will then show them like, oh no, you, you goofed up. Um, it kind that's of shows you what the curse long. is like from 94 again. Yeah. Plus, I, it, it's a bummer because in 94, we get to see all the killers at least a little bit in action which is mysterious yeah. and cool because you don't know anything about him yet. And then in 78, you really just have one killer with an axe who gets his mask pretty late on in the showing. Uh, it almost feels like an afterthought. They're like, oh, right, we got to make this guy late. unique. That was weird. Left stack on him. Yeah. yeah, ultimately, he... ultimately, I think chopping these into one-hour installments, leave the runtime of each of them like about the way they are, but just make 1978 just an hour-long flashback episode like 1666, I think that would have played a lot better. Yeah, for me, it definitely would have. I don't know if I need to sit through six hours again for this, but if this were like a four-hour event uh, and each segment had, you know, it's distinct one-hour piece, that would be fantastic for me. I could sit through that very easily. I think I'd enjoy it more because you don't have to spend as much time in the flashback area. And I would say, too, I, the flashback only bothers me in 1978. In 1666, I don't mind it. I actually really like how they set up the parallels between uh, the world that we saw in 1994 and their their version of 1666, which oh, yeah, was... to be perfectly historically accurate. But it was neat to see where they, they kind of gave a more uh, modern, youthful eye to that time period than what we're used to in, in more dour kind of crucible films. It was a breath of fresh air, while also utilizing the whole the same cast thing it was a nice a it meant they didn't have to completely change cast again for a third time but also nice shorthand <laughs> of like right nothing nothing changes everything's just as shitty as it was then really well it gets a little blurry because some of the like the uh possessed boyfriend killer in part two turns out to be a complete asshole in 1666 which felt a little off because he didn't seem like a bad dude until he's possessed in 78. But most of the other characters feel like they're fairly on the mark for who they were before. So who knows? Maybe that guy was just an asshole before summer camp. It's possible. Well, I like 78 a lot more the second time. Right? I do want to say that. 
I like like I said, I like the Goonies style stuff, like popping around caves and uncovering mysteries and and all that. My honestly, I think seventy eight would be much more enjoyable if it just had the same character work as ninety four and sixty six. Ziggy was the only one I I at all liked. Yeah, it was mm-hmm. well, well. There, the the strongest thing about this trilogy is its character work and how. Imagine yeah. to f- deeply flesh out characters who would normally be you know, just cardboard cutouts in a, a, a typical 90-minute slasher movie. But the problem with 78 is it goes into extensive detail into characters you don't like spending time with. It's like lear- learning all of the backstory of an asshole character does not make me like the <laughs> asshole character more. Yes. And it, well, it, then, it, it's, it's then, really hard. I'm sorry. Oh, oh, I was going to say, and it throws me off, too, because the whole thing is a shell game, right? Like I said before, one, they're trying to throw you off about the witch's curse. But two, they're trying to throw you off about the good family and make you think that Nick is actually, like, a decent good, right? But, it like, logistically doesn't make sense. Like, he's faking at all times, even around his younger brother, who you'd have to assume was probably in on the family secret. And it feels like they're just trying to, to get one over on you when you view it in retrospect, which bothers me. You, you've also seen this character be a a dickhead cop in the future so you don't <laughs> right. cry that he's a, a nice guy like maybe just yeah. cut out that one scene of him with the spray paint cans in 1994 and that might have worked but no that that is a that is timothy dalton looking at the camera with a cha-ching noise very much so so that that all gets to me which like there's important exposition in 78 and you meet some of your characters and there's fun stuff there too. I mean, they are trying their best to give you a, a new Friday the 13th kind of feel, right? You've got a burlap sack killer for your young Jason. You got ax, kids getting axed in the face, shenanigans, uh, drugs, sex. Uh, yeah, I was going to say rock and roll, but that would get us into needle drops. And I want to cover that later. Uh, there's good stuff in 78, but I don't feel it actually fits in with the rest of the story they're telling, which is my problem. If this were a solo movie, like, if they did a spinoff of Fear Street and they just had, like, one time in 78 where there was an axe murder, I'd probably be much more receptive to the film. But because it's so tied Which, in with everything else, it just feels like this is the drag in the middle. It's just too bloated. It could, it could have, you could have cut 20 minutes out of it. The, the, the cool thing about 78, though, is you go in expecting, like, okay, they're doing a Friday the 13th pastiche. But really, that's happening, but that's not the focus of the film at all. Like, two other characters at the camp, a Friday the 13th movie is happening to them. And I did appreciate the utilization of that slasher iconography and those slasher tropes. But telling this more mythological story, and also even a more personal story, even in 78, that still mostly kind of works between the sisters, where well, going that on. slasher element is very ancillary like it's it's happening in the margins like they run up against it here and there i thought that was a really neat misdirect at the start of uh 1994 where they're essentially doing a modern day version of scream which which i thought was fantastic as a huge scream fan it was very cool to see that kind of almost sort of remade but for a new audience to understand why it was so fun like you get Maya Hawk in there, who everyone I'm assuming, like me, just saw the her and went, "Oh, cool, she's our main character." And then she gets bumped off she's after the first like six minutes. Pretty it was cool to they experience that, that. Just like all of those older people who got to see Scream in the theater. Yeah, and and she has her moment too, where she gets to take the mask off of the villain who's stabbing her to death. But this time, we actually get to understand right away like who it is, which drives a different sort of mystery. Whereas in Scream, you don't see who the face is, who's killing Casey. Uh, so the, the movie becomes a murder mystery. And there's red herrings and all that, and you're trying to guess until the third act. This one, it's it's almost like the Columbo approach. You know who did it, and you're trying to figure out why, which I really appreciate that. I thought that was a neat spin where you start us off thinking it's going to be a slasher movie. And really, that's not the case. Like, not at all. Moments, but it doesn't dwell in that area. So it's a kind of a neat bait and switch that I, I had fun with. Yeah, that's something very cool. It's consistent throughout the trilogy that each of these stories are cliched trope driven uh, horror archetypes but like hidden inside of each of these like a russian nesting doll is a much more interesting more complex and mythological story Uh, even in 1666 like you have essentially the witch happening but also there's this love story buried in also there's this like it's corruption this uh satanic corruption conspiracy going on 
all while the more traditional horror movie is just happening over there on the sidelines. And I, I really love that uh, for all those little complexities. There's a simple enough theme everyone can jump on, but it still says more than your average slasher. That I, I just I absolutely love the idea that the good family has essentially made a pact with Satan or hell, whatever. He's, he calls a bunch of different demons. I don't know if it's necessarily, necessarily Lucifer. Satan. Um, but he does all this for the ability to be sheriff of a town everyone refers to as like the murder capital of the United States. Like he's he's picked the shittiest town in the world to be the, the sheriff of. It's very strange because his younger brother is the one who becomes the mayor. So it's not even like he's totally in control. He just gets to be the lawman. It's hilarious. Nick Good has, has done all the shitty, horrible stuff to have the smallest amount of white guy power. But he's he's living the dream, I guess, because that's that's all he asked for. And he killed Which his is way. brilliant. The suburban area gets to be all the the big white people area that's rich and toity gets to be all clean and it's gentrification like it's just it's white people gentrification and it's red lines like just i'm so excited i get to murder one guy from the bad side of town each year so we can have a nice clean chipotle on my side of town <laughs> and that was like brilliant at the at the end because you've been watching this like uh kind of queer coming of age story that was I, I that I also love so much because it's the entire trilogy can be summed up as a refusal to give in to the barrier gaze trope. Like it's fighting against an entire trope the whole time. And that's that's all like that's what it comes down to and that's kind of beautiful. And then at the end the the reveal of it also oh also we're we're you know eat the rich. <laughs> As long well, as we're the, here. This entire trilogy like, really puts the class politics of like, your traditional slasher movie under a microscope. I love how the, the surviving characters are made up of almost entirely of the characters who would be the first or second to die in any other slasher movie. Which was like, I know reading from, inter from reading interviews was very intentional on their part. Like, there's... Uh, a long-standing tradition in stories like this to uh, treat the disenfranchised and people from the margins of society as just outsiders that can be you know, cast off without much emotional attachment. Uh, so it's, it's nice seeing something that's completely reversed like that. Like making an action movie where the punk is the hero, which somebody <laughs> get on that. And uh, just, it's it's very nice seeing that the conflict between uh, like Dina and Sam is driven one because Sam is afraid to tell everyone that they're a queer couple and two that she's essentially moving to the nice side of town so it becomes a class struggle on top of like the the sexuality struggle which makes their relationship feel a lot more lived in and real like it's not just one problem it's it's all these other things that go along with it that you have to contend with I, I do wish um shady side were a little shittier looking they got a they got a shitty up shady side like, we hear people get murdered there pretty often, but we don't... I guess we do get contacts all the time, because all the kids that work at Shady... or live in Shadyside, like, their parents can't make rent, and so they all have to have, like, like two jobs or, you know, do do stuff on the side because their parents are... Dina's house is still really nice, shit. though. I mean, yeah, they've got, like, a basement and a computer in 1994 with, like, message boards and stuff. So they they were on the, the cusp. This is why we need another Fear Street movie set in the mid two thousands where just the entire town is a is foreclosed. <laughs> That'd be so sad. Yeah, I love how the relationship like how real the relationship between Dina and Sam feel that uh, feels uh, the way it's portrayed. Like there's like you said, so many different factors going into their rift where it's not just your typical, you know, teen movie drama. Uh, I like, it's not a one-note there... situation where if the characters talk to each other, the actual resolution be reached in two minutes. Like, this is an emotional struggle that they really have to just work through and go through, which is nice because you're going to have two characters fight each other and break up and all that shit. I should understand that it's a real struggle, not just something they threw on paper to fill in screen time. Yeah. And, and I appreciate that it doesn't just amount to uh, one is proud of being gay, the other isn't, so they fight about it. As that's, right. Again, that's something that can be resolved with a believe in yourself speech. I like that there's, <laughs> uh, like, like any any teenage relationship, there's a million little cuts that end up killing it. And uh, the the idea of the 
of Sam being possessed by the supernatural force that's keeping all of them disenfranchised and afraid. That internalized self-hatred becoming real. Like, ah, that's that, that's such a juicy metaphor. I, I really like how that was played. Yeah. Uh, to, to go back to your point, Mike, about just showing the differences between the sides, I will say it was very effective uh, at the end of part three, where they come out of the tunnel into uh, Sheriff Good's house, and everything is very oh, yeah. clean and white. And it, there's like, motivational the posters first time on the I was walls. Watching a movie, yeah, courage. Like it took me out of it for a second because, like, I like I don't know what it was. Like I was responding to a text, and I looked up. And I'm like, did did like killing the witch cause some sort of like time travel shenanigans? Did they fix the whole past? So I had to rewind and be like, oh, no, they just walked into the bad guy's house and his place is so much nicer. It feels like it's from a different movie. It just looks like you're in Martyrs all of a sudden. <laughs> the symbolism of the mud on the floor was so good. And goats everywhere. It's like my ideal house with the goats. <laughs> so uh, one thing we've jumped past, and I do want to take a, a minute to talk about this because I feel like this was a bit of a contentious point online. The amount of needle drops we have throughout these films. One, people were weirded out by how many there were and two people were frustrated by some of them not being period accurate for the time they were playing them in you know you pick like There's a lot of an, an yeah yeah which i feel like you have to get used to by judging the fact there's going to be a 1966 film in here or i'm sorry a 1666 film in here like <laughs> they're probably not just going to exclusively use folk music after nine inch nails and radiohead and everything else they crammed into the first two movies so i'm, I'm not so bothered by that aspect but the sheer number astounded me like i there there's literally one scene in 94 where they first go to the high school and they're using i can't remember the three songs but they play one needle drop into another needle drop into a third within the span of something like 12 seconds and it just blew my mind like that's so expensive what is happening let one it's very expensive and very distracting I also i i guess this is one bonus point to 1978 once you know the twist which I don't think was that big of a twist, honestly, but they played it up pretty big, that that Ziggy is uh, the Berman sister that survives. Uh, <laughs> it's so weird. It's so weird. But on, on a rewatch, it was like, oh, duh. It's more obvious than I even thought it was the first time because her dog is named Major Tom. And yeah. there's like two or three different points in that movie where she's walking around, her specifically, and they're playing David Bowie music. Like, and duh, her name's Ziggy. Of course. Well, that also that, yeah. So it's like, okay, come on. It all ties together pretty hard. And on a rewatch, it's like, oh, this is so obvious. It was probably also obvious they the, the same first time around, but it's just an assumption. The same personality. You go from her talking to inch being introduced to Ziggy. It's, it's all very baffling that that was considered a twist. And it means nothing. Like, what was there a different type of dramatic irony in thinking that Ziggy was going to die? I, yeah, that one threw me off. I didn't know why they made it such a big deal. Like, oh, you're C. Berman. Like, uh, yeah. Um, plus, this is a real nitpick. Like, I, I should shut up about it. It's probably not even worth complaining. But just the resurrection of Ziggy at the end of 1978 threw me off. Like, she'd been stabbed enough times to die and all it took Dark a little magic. bit of CPR. And she's, that would make more sense. But I guess that would give away No, I mean, that's literally, I think, what it's supposed to be. He utilizes uh, some of, he utilizes some of the Sunny Vale, like, good luck, dark magic stuff to resurrect her. Yeah, that's what I got from like it being included in like the uh, all is revealed montage at, near the end. Yeah, yeah. I feel like they could have played up that point a little bit more. And I mean, there's only a week between part two and part three, so I guess hinting a little bit more heavily that Sheriff Good's a piece of shit, or at least suspicious, wouldn't have necessarily have been bad. But I, that that's pretty minor. I mean, whatever. <laughs> the the important thing is the dramatic arc that one sister lived and the other one died. Although even that, I would, I would, I was a little upset that the sisters spent so little time together in 1978. It's only towards like the end of the movie that they get to reunite after. Um, oh shit! I'm forgetting their sister's name, Cindy. Uh, Cindy's kind of had a change of heart about the person she wants to be. Which I don't know how you jumble that all together in a more satisfying way, but it feels like the sisters should have the journey together rather than separately. Fair yeah, I'm really bit. not sure why we needed uh, Cindy's big adventure and the the underground caverns with one of the least likable horror characters I've seen in a very long time. <laughs> I was so happy when Alice died. Mike, we tell all us happy why you when Alice, like Alice died. Maybe a little. Everything. 
It's not just me. Jamie just shit all over Alice, too. So get off my back. Mike, you started like I'm so excited to shit on Alice. Just, oh, I hate Alice everywhere. I hate all Alice's. The tractors, whatever. Alice, I see an Alice and I'm mad. So that's why I asked you. I happen to like people named Alice. So I felt betrayed. Uh, Mike named three nice Alice's. (laughs) Alice Sweet Alice is a really good movie. Yeah. Alice in Wonderland, that's good. Alice from Friday the 13th, I enjoyed that, Alice. Mike, I'm a little ashamed you didn't immediately do Alice Cooper. That's getting back into the needle drops. Uh, It is. I'm still looking at the list, though. I do have to say, I was really excited when I heard uh, Sour Times by Portishead playing. Like, hey, I love that song. There were some good ones. There were some good ones. creep in here. They fucking got a Nine Inch Nails song in there. They did Creep. It was like, man, I, I don't know what kind of deal Netflix has in place for these songs. But this has Netflix to be has a lot expensive. of fucking money. That that was that was the only thing that I think came down to the needle drops. Is this is um a little bit of a 1941 situation where they had a little bit too much budget to work with, and they used it on needle drops. <laughs> we can't return the money. We won't get it next time. I do have to say though, it is amazing to see a horror trilogy with actual money and a, a a script that ties together. It's not just like loose retcons going into each other to keep the system rolling down a hill. Like just imagine a world where we had a bunch of these, where there's just a ton of money being thrown at things to all be written at one time to make sense and to be fun and enjoyable. Yeah. Is this a unicorn? It's, I, think I this can't is a unicorn. imagine we'll get too many more. I, I, I'd like to think this did pretty well. So hopefully we get a new fear street trilogy down the road at some point. I mean, the, it seems the to end have done very well for them. Or someone so. stealing the book. Yeah, and I know um, Jenek has talked about having a lot to expand it. Plus, there's just there's more to pull from from books. You could still go back in time and show flashbacks to. I want to see that kid with the wooden head thing so badly. I I want to see the dude <laughs> with the leather bird mask. What's his story? Why was there a splicer running around your city? What happened? Yeah. <laughs> I, I I love the fucking cabin in the woods like mythology going on. Utilizing oh, the God, Sick, of... I mean it'd be cool to see those, but how fun would it be if we got another series like this where they focused on maybe more like a creature feature where it was fucking werewolves or vampires oh, zombies, great. name it. Just some sort of I don't know if that's a big part of the Fear Street books. Uh but being ignorant about it, I can just make but it. But it can be Why Janic- not? Uh Janica said like the the uh, the canvas is there for you to make this series just the marvel of horror and just have spinoffs and just all kinds of Fear Street shit just set within like the narrow confines of just the devil exists in this universe and you can make deals with with the devil that involves slashers and other monsters. Yeah, I'd I'd love if every trilogy focused on a different aspect of the horror genre. Like this one was slashers. Next one could be gothic horror or you know, monsters, body horror, any number of things. They could they could make a, a good version of it part two. Anything world's their oyster. How <laughs> dare you besmirch can... the beautiful character arc of Richie Tozier? <laughs> uh, boy, I'm reading the Wikipedia article right now, which you know has to be ironclad. And apparently, last month. Uh, Janik expressed interest in expanding the film series beyond the trilogy. She had stated to be interested in adapting a slasher film that takes place during the 50s and centers around Harry Rooker slash The Milkman. Ooh. Do it. Do it. Killer Milkman. Killer Milkman. Why not? Sure. I would watch it for sure. Although now I'm disappointed because we just talked about like a gothic. Gothic. (laughs) Gothic. I'm not sure what accent just escaped me there. Gothic castle. Uh, Very gothic. Kind of run down. Gothic. The spooky town, the spooky part of town. I don't know. Whatever it is, if there's more, I'm, I'm going to be excited for it. Make more. Make more now. I know COVID's happening, but make more make, now. Make more now. It was cool uh, to have, like, just a really fun here. horror thing, too. But, like, one, but not, you know, kitschy or, or anything like that. Like, I adore Psycho Goreman, but, you know, that's that's going for a very specific type of tone. And same thing with, like, Terrifier and things like that. This just having that... yeah. That '90s fun horror tone that's that's from Gateway Horror, but this time it's R-rated. That that's cool. Yeah. That's what's great about it. The tone here is fascinating to me because it is fun. Like the characters are fun, and it's it's exciting monsters. And it's not misery uh, most of the way through, but it is surprisingly mean spirited in spots. Like in, in mean spirited and very depth, and it has a lot of depth. 
Yeah, like you just see that these characters' lives are pretty much always shit. Or like Josh falls in love for the first time, and then that girl just gets brutally murdered. Uh, or or you know the other the other guy. Fuck, I'm forgetting his name. Um, uh, the, the drug dealing kid. Employee of the month. Employee of the month. Not Evan Peters. Just Peter. gets his head axed in, which is a shame. He's my my MVP. I should remember his character name. So it's like, oh, they make you actually love these characters then off them, which is the most upsetting. It's like when Randy dies in Scream 2. You know, it's one of those, no, why did you do it? No. What, what, well, the tone dictates, made... no, it, the tone dictates, oh, none of these characters are going to die. So killing them so late in the game, because you can kind of get away with that, with it being a three-parter. Like, ah, this isn't really like the final ten minutes of the movie. It's just the final ten minutes of part one. So, aha, we're killing everybody. Right. Well, even at the end of part one, where Dina gets stabbed by Sam, they reveal the possession twist. It's like, oh, shit. You can't really, at the time, I'm like, I can't really grade part one in my mind, because it's so clearly going to be bleeding into part two. But man, if I were watching this and the movie ended that way, I, I'd feel kind of betrayed almost, you know? Like, what a switch in tone at the very end there, where everything is actually awful and you can't get around it. Well, the fact there was, I think, a teaser for 78 made it, made it far less dour than it would have been otherwise. For sure. Oh, yeah. The, the fact that they established that the plot for the rest of the series would be uh, saving Sam definitely helped, because I, I did have a very strong reaction whenever I thought that, that the ending to 1994 yeah. was going to be a lot darker, because that would... If, if there was not a continuation there, that would have been a gigantic middle finger to everything they were going for. And I'm, oh, yeah. I, I, even, I even wonder if, like, just if they released that theatrically, if that would have pissed people off, if they couldn't uh, follow Twitter that up would have had as takes. quickly as they did. Uh, yeah. I, but, uh, I imagine people would have been pretty pissed if that's the way they did it. Honestly, of the three, I would say 94 is the one that feels to me the most like it could stand on its own as its own movie if you just cut off the very tail end and just left oh, everything yeah. perfect. Yeah, I mean, there's, I, I think, a couple of loose threads you'd probably want to clean up a little bit because they seem like they're outstanding. But considering how movies are made these days where there's always got to be a sequel tease and we're always doing setup for something further, it doesn't feel that out of place to a modern film. That's not necessarily a good thing. I'm just saying it would feel a part of like how movies are made these days where you just know, oh, fuck, they're pushing everything on to part two. And speaking to the tone, I do love how as aggressively in your face, fuck you, as, this, as these movies can get in places, I like how there's ultimately uh, a, redempt a redemptive bend to the writing. Like, I love how even with the characters that you grow to love and who end up being ripped apart in front of you like they're nothing, there's still an effort, even after they're die they've died, for their deaths to mean something and for the films to acknowledge them as more than just disposable characters. Even shitty characters like Alice are still human beings, and the fact that they're, you know, destroyed uh, still carries some weight to it, which I feel like is... Uh, ultimately makes the movie not mean-spirited in the end. Like, I, I find that yeah. to be a far more, a far kinder way to go about it than the, tr the typical uh, slasher mode of just characters being body, like, future body bags that are there for you to <laughs> enjoy their, their extermination. Meat sacks. That's definitely true in 94 and 66. However, in 78... There's a lot of campers that just get fucking axed. So, there are some red shirts in 78, but you know, that's fun. Literal red shirts, because the color... Kids die, though, so it's kind of cool. I yeah, but they were, like, off-screen. Yeah, it was... I, I, I like the spirit of it. However, there's that one nerdy kid who's supposed to be the prison guard who gets, like, axed off-screen. It's like, no! Show that kid getting split in half. Come on. He still dies, That'd be though, the top. so imagine, you know what? I'm still giving yeah, a props. Yeah, but imagine you're like 12 dies. years old on a movie set. You want to have your head blown up on screen. You want to die the gory death. You don't want to die it, behind a shed Can we wall. just appreciate the kids die? <laughs> Parents' lives it's rare. never be the same. That's what matters. <laughs> I really appreciate how bad that sounds out of context. Can we just appreciate them kids die? Bet. In context, out of context, it all sounds bad. I don't care. I'm just happy the children <laughs> die. In this RL See, I mean, that, that, is a, that is a big reason why I appreciate Mimic. You go, Guillermo del Toro. You go. Oh, yeah, yeah. 
Look, there's two things about this entire trilogy that makes me happy. Kids die, and then Dina actually brought burgers at the end. That's true. We did get pixies and burgers. It's a little, it's a little thick. Which, as far as dates go, pretty, pretty good. I still feel like this is in continuity with Paranorman, too. You're getting those vibes, too. I could definitely get some Paranorman vibes out of this, yeah. I, I'm I'm very impressed it's the witch with the... Thing. I think it's the witch <laughs> thing. <laughs> I'm very impressed with the various ways horror movies have been trying to go at the whole witch thing sideways in our generation, since... It's very difficult to do witches traditionally without uh, unintentionally uh, sidestepping genocide. So uh, I'm very interested in seeing like movies like The Autopsy of Jane Doe, or even recently with stuff like WandaVision, that or any time a witch shows up on screen is in any way like tied to witch trials or any other kind of persecution. There's some kind of backdoor into it. They work their way around too. It's it's a cool challenge to see every particular uh, story face. I saw someone on Twitter today recommend doing a double feature of uh, Fear Street sixteen sixty six and I Married a Witch. <laughs> and you know what? That could be fun. Who do Gretel and Hansel? Ooh, yeah, we should talk about that one more often. That's a that's a cool movie. We really Fuck should. That, yeah. Actually, that would make a great that would make a great pairing with the Green Knight. I think those two together. I could see that. I would have to watch it alone, because if I ever made my friends try and sit down with me, they would just leave after ten minutes. I mean, we'd enjoy it. That's true. Sitting in dead silence, just... <laughs> you know, is everybody just feeling stuff right now? At the end, we all opera clap. It's very nice. I definitely would show up wearing a monocle and some white gloves and a tuxedo. Yeah, I'm all down for us wearing tuxedos to, to walk to do this double feature. I'd probably... I don't know if I'd be wearing tuxedo pants, though. I'd probably just be wearing some shorts. It seems too hot otherwise. Yeah, that's true. I'd be wearing black socks, though. Can we have a version of, like, the, the Chowder Society where we do this? We just meet once a year wearing <laughs> half a tuxedo and a monocle and watch very pretentious things together. Cody, is this, just your, is this just your dream of bringing soup and suits to life? Oh God! Isn't it glorious? Wouldn't that be a time? We can make we can make soup. We could bring soup. I don't. Do they? Okay, I'm trying to think back to a ghost story. If they actually like had chowder at the Chowder Society, I don't think they did. They had to have had chowder. At least honorary chowder, like a like a like a can. Honorary chowder. <laughs> yeah, a can. Honorary chowder makes it sound like they have a picture like of a, a, a bowl, of bowl of chowder, like a chowder. still life somewhere, and they call that good. You got a bow to the chowder. Of the chowder that started at all. I'm very mad because this is consumed very good on like, the day the, the entire foundation was founded. Ooh, each time they eat their chowder, uh, someone puts fake eyeballs in it to, to spook the other members. Only they do it every time, so it's like not even a surprise anymore. <laughs> oh, Phil, you These got me. These are grapes. These are grapes and spaghetti. Oh, it's, it's that opening of that uh, one Simpson Street House of Horror. <laughs> yes, yes, it's exactly that. And these are the chowder springs. No. No. Mike, if you're ever but in anyway. a scary movie, that's how I want you to go. I want you to make those noises <laughs> as you're killed. Just I kind would of like, like just, you're a horse. I would enjoy, in a moment of being murdered, take the satisfaction away from the murderer by being as obnoxious as possible. Oh, the ghostification process has begun. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like there's a couple ways. (laughs) Joke's on you, I took poison ten minutes ago. This means nothing. You can't Uh, kill a dead man. (laughs) I think if someone's killing you, there's a couple ways to go about it. One, you could just really turn them off to the process by being too into it. Like, dying makes you horny. And then they're mad because they didn't want to turn you on. They wanted to murder you. Two, you just really undersell the moment. Like, they think they're doing something epic by murdering you. And instead, your reaction is, oh, nuts. Like, just just really, oh, gosh, golly gee. Oh, I'm dead. Whoops-a-doo. Third option. They're done Third option. That. You, you, you're being stabbed. You pull out a knife and start stabbing yourself faster. <laughs> <laughs> Who's going to win, motherfucker? I get that vibe every time I watch, like, The Lord of the Rings and, like, Lutz, the big orc, gets stabbed, and he just grabs the sword and pulls it in, like, yeah, what now? I'm just saying, yeah, it'd be hilarious if they did that in Scream 5. 
<laughs> Fear Street. Good stuff. Box Office Pulp recommends Fear Street 1, 2, because it's there, and 3. And technically part 4. I would say if you don't like one part, watch the whole thing. Uh, the finale to it all has a way of redeeming even the weaker parts of the other two. Yeah, and you've got a Netflix account. What are you waiting for? Go watch some TV. And it is fun once you've watched the whole thing to go back and actually restart it. It, it actually does um, work all as a, in a rewatch as well. There you have it, folks. Box Office Pulp strongly recommends Fear Street. Fuck Whitey. There we go. <laughs> I really like that we uh, told people to go watch the movie. The thing we just spoiled all over the, the place. Movie in depth. Right, yeah, like there's absolutely no reason you need to go watch it now because we told you all the plot points. Enjoy. We, we don't do anything that makes any fucking sense. Spoilers, spoilers, Fear Street dies at the end. Kind of true. Kind of. Huh. Kind of true. And like that... He's gone. We didn't get our moment in where we actually plug the fact that our show can be found in other spots. Do it. Folks, if you've enjoyed this episode, you can find plenty more of Box Office Pulp, including a, a range of commentary tracks for various movies, most of them not Netflix. Sorry. All throughout the internet. You can find us on boxofficepulp.com. We are on uh, Facebook. We are on Twitter, Stitcher iTunes, all over the place. Just go to the internet, type box office pulp owes me money, and Mike will probably have to give you $5 if you listen to an episode. I don't know if that's a binding contract, but I have now said it on the show. Is this our version of a shady side curse, just an online chain letter? <laughs> I've, I've now put this on Mike's head. The truth will one day find me out, but it won't be today. Why, why do I feel like I'm, I've done something illegal now? It's not a bribe if you don't actually pay them anything, right? Anyways, folks, please listen to more of our show. Uh, and go ahead, go to iTunes. Give us a star rating that's preferably more than one star. The more stars, the better. Steal some stars from other shows that have too many. Give them to us. Everyone's seen This American Life. We know it's good. Give us their stars. Tell us what you think. Talk to us. Box Office Pope is a vampire that steals likes from other podcasts. If only that were true, we'd be so famous by now. Just bloated and covered in blood would be the best way to live. Oh, box office pulp would be uh, the vampire from Blade that's in the big uh, pool that they kill with the UV light. Oh, 100% that vampire. Yeah, no, no doubt about it. Folks, now that we have that visual image in your head, I think that's a wrap. Get the hell out of here. Oh god, I take that back. Box office pulp does not eat children. Too late. It's part of the curse, Jamie. I like box office pulp now. <laughs> I was saying that while actually eating the drumstick of a child. So I don't know if it's true we can't take it back, but I definitely can. Go. Go. This is Box Office Pulp Guy, and this has been a Pulp Podcast production. Now please, 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 put a gun in my mouth and pull the trigger and say goodnight. And now, on with the show. <laughs>